Greetings from Jerusalem. It's a sunny afternoon here in Israel. And uh, thankfully, here in Jerusalem, we're actually experiencing some days of quiet. Unfortunately, for the rest of Israel, that quiet is not the case. Um, today, our topic is Shavuot, um, from Mount Sinai to the upper room. But before we go into our biblical theme, um, I want to ask uh, our guest, Rabbi Shmuel Bowman, um, who in addition to being a rabbi and a scribe, we, ICEJ, works with Shmuel constantly on security issues. And so Shmuel, can you give us an update on the situation here in Israel today? Thank you. Thank you, Barry. I will. Uh, the situation is, is, is that we are facing a, um, an Iranian-backed uh, terror organization called Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad, who have for the last, uh, what is it now? Uh, I can't even count. It's, it's definitely more than a week and a half, uh, have been uh, uh, terrorizing the entire country through rockets. I think we're now just about at 4,000 rockets. Uh, that have been uh, launched at Israel. Um, this is causing uh, a lot of distress, a lot of damage, uh, in some cases fatalities, in many cases uh, shock and uh, trauma, which we'll be feeling for a long time to come even after this uh, crisis quiets down. Um, Israel is doing its utmost. We have a phenomenal army. We have a wonderful Israel Defense Forces that is, uh, they're, they're doing a phenomenal job. They're also the uh, very ethical and very uh, precise uh, military. We're talking about an army that goes in and warns the residents of Gaza one hour, one hour before a building that is a, a terror base is, is, is struck. Uh, so that there are no casualties in that building when Israel hits it. This is not the same uh, um, courtesy we're getting from Hamas, where in some cases you have but a few seconds uh, to run to a shelter. There's no, there's no warning. We've seen some fatalities uh, recently, uh, just the other day, two uh, Thai workers, these are foreign workers from Thailand who are working in agriculture, uh, were killed. Uh, I was on the phone at the time with the neighbor down the street. So I heard everything happening live. Two uh, farm workers were killed and the third one was very seriously wounded, losing both an arm and a leg. And the others were also wounded. Uh, it's interesting, we were talking about the connection as we about to talk about Shavuot, at the Feast of Weeks, because Shavuot begins the uh, wheat harvest. Uh, and it has been doing that for thousands of years. And the prophets teach us that there will be days, there will be days when we will need to go into the field and harvest with a wheat sheaf uh, in, uh, excuse me, a wheat cutter in one hand and a sword in the other. And that prophecy, which goes back thousands of years, we're seeing it today, where the, uh, where the John Deere uh, tractors are harvesting the wheat while a tank or soldiers are nearby to make sure the work can get done. So we are li literally living in prophetic times. 
and uh, it's serious times. And I'm just so grateful and thankful that as we place shelters uh, throughout Israel that are literally saving lives, that have been saving, that, that, that we've been placing for the last decade and a half, that have literally saved lives, that each and every one of you has been a partner in protecting and saving lives. We'll leave it there for now. I will, however, say if you want to keep up with the news, and you should, please be in touch with the ICEJ, uh, with their uh, social media, because that's where you're going to get really accurate information constantly. Well, thank you for that update. Um, and it's important what you shared, the fact that before the IDF brings down any of these buildings, including the Hamas headquarters that also headquartered the different international medias, they all had an hour's warning. Um, they knew the building was going to come down and they were told to evacuate. And so the IDF is focusing on destroying the terror infrastructure and avoiding the loss of life as much as possible, which is is utterly amazing um, in times of warfare like this. Thank you for that. Well, now I want to invite our other guest who's well known to you here on the webinar. He's my friend and the president of the ICEJ, Dr. Jürgen Bueller. Jürgen, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Barry. And uh, thank you also so much, uh, uh, Shmuel, for those very important words that came from you. And uh, let me just add to that, before we go to the subject of today from Mount Sinai to the upper room, um, we need to understand, you know, and this is important for everybody out there to talk to your media, talk to your uh, politicians, that Hamas is carrying out a double war crime here in this conflict. Uh, you just heard from uh, Shmuel how Israel is warning uh, people an hour in advance. I think that's unheard of that something like that is happening in front of those uh, airstripes they have to carry out. And while Hamas is carrying out a twofold war crime, number one, those missiles that are heading towards Israel, they are not targeted at military installation. This is not a war where, you know, one military fights with the other. But this is a literal, very disastrous uh, terror missile attack on the civilians of Israel. They are targeted to population centers in Tel Aviv, in Rishon Lezion, um, Rechovot, to uh, Ashtod, Ashkelon, the whole southern area. They deliberately target civilians, not military installations, which is uh, number one war crime. And the second one is they are, sadly enough, are using their own population as human shields. And that's exactly the same, the re very reason why Shmuel said Israel is warning one hour in advance uh, we are going to bomb. Why? Because this, uh, you, we cannot say it, other inhumane terror organizations, they put their rocket launchers in the midst of kindergartens, hospitals, shopping centers, um, even the international press center, which I honestly, I don't know how international media actually can stay there. They know there is an information center of a terrorist organization. So why in the world do you have your media center there? But they are using those areas 
that when Israel strikes, the whole world feels, oh, how bad Israel is there targeting civilian. And you know, the Israeli army, they are, it's, it's exactly the opposite. They are standing in front of their population to protect them, while Hamas is using in a very cowardly way, using its own population as a shield to protect the terrorists. And uh, I call here on everybody listening, talk to your politicians, talk to the media outlets, our governments in the countries where we are coming from, they need to speak up on that. Uh, they cannot tolerate that. You know, it's not an even-handed conflict, you know, where one nation is uh, fighting another one. There is no reason whatsoever why Hamas is attacking uh, Israel withdrew completely from Gaza many, many years ago, but they decided to build up a terrorist regime in Gaza. And we need our nations to stand against that. And also, of course, all believers be called to pray in those days for Israel like never before. And thirdly, also, I want to echo the words of uh, Shmuel that we really need to prove ourselves in these times of crisis that we are there for Israel, we are Israel's friends, and that we assist those uh, absolutely noble, life-saving endeavors of building bomb shelters uh, in the south of Israel. They literally saved lives. We heard many testimonies like that, and uh, I want to encourage everybody to join that. Now, on a lighter note, or uh, yeah, on a more, on a different note, uh, we are just coming out here in Israel from the uh, Hebrew celebration of Shavuot. We are entering in the Christian world uh, into the celebration of Pentecost, which are both feasts that uh, Pentecost originated out of the uh, out of the Shavuot celebration in Jerusalem, and. Um, I want to, the first point I would like to make in my, in my point is we want to look first of all, what does the Tanakh, what is what we call the Old Testament uh, tells us about Shavuot and we will see how relevant it is for us to understand what the Tanakh tells us about Shavuot in order to understand the fullness of what Pentecost Shavuot means for us Christians in the, in the New Testament or New Covenant. Um, we have to say that Shavuot is a feast that um, maybe is less frequently talked about also in the Tanakh than, let's say, to, uh, Passover or Tabernacles. Uh, Pesach and Sukkot, they are, we, we read much more about them. There are very few passages that really speak about Shavuot. And one of the important passages that I just would like to read to you, and this is where the feast is being is installed uh, by the Lord, it is uh, it establishes the uh, connection to from between Passover and the Shavuot feast. This is in Leviticus chapter twenty three and verse fifteen. And there, an, uh, it's uh, an important piece of information. It says, "You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath." from the day that you brought the sheaf of your wave offering. And the sheaf of the wave offering, this was the day of the celebration of the first fruits during the week of Passover. And then uh, the God told through Moses to the people of Israel, you shall count seven full weeks. And that means if you calculate that in today's seven times seven, seven days per week, this is 49 days. And that means on the 50th day of that, uh, after you started to count, you are supposed to celebrate uh, Shavuot. 
And uh, that's where we get the, 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 the Greek word for Pentecost from, or the English word also, Pentecost, means it's uh, 50 days or the count of 50 uh, in the calendar. And the rabbis say something very interesting. He says, this Omer counting, this is how it is called in Hebrew, the counting of the Omer to count the days down, 49 days until you reach the 50th one. This connects, in a way, the Passover feast, the Pesach feast with Shavuot. In a way, it unifies them into one big feast. And in a way, you see this also in the New Testament, that those two feasts, those two uh, sequences, they are fulfilled within 50 days. You see Passover uh, with the Passion Week stories. And exactly 50 weeks later, you see uh, that there is something happening in Jerusalem in the upper room. And we'll speak about that in a minute. So the, through this Omer counting, those two feasts are celebrated and talking to all of our Christian friends around the world. This is important for us to understand because it means also as those feasts are one unit and are unified in one big festival in a way. Uh, so also we need to understand that you can't probably celebrate Passover without Shavuot afterwards or vice versa, you can't really celebrate Shavuot without the understanding of Passover. And I think those two feasts, they need to be seen together uh, as a unit. Now, the theme of today from Mount Sinai to, um, to, to the upper room, you might wonder, well, what does Mount Sinai has to do with Shavuot? And, um, and uh, this was, I must say, one of the revelations that uh, living in this land, living in, the, in a Jewish community, in a Jewish environment brought to me, it really helped me dramatically to understand what is Pentecost all about, what is the Pentecost feast meaning for Christians. And here, Mount Sinai is uh, the central location when we speak about Shavuot for the Jewish people. And we read this in the book of Exodus in chapter 19. We read there on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, if you remember what I just told you, I told you to count down the dates uh, that day. So the Lord tells his people to count down the days from Passover to Shavuot, 50 days, seven full weeks. And here we are in the beginning of the third month. If you, if you consider the beginning of Passover starting on the 15th or on the, in the evening of the 14th day, and then you count 50 days, you will see that you are almost approaching the day of Pentecost on the first day of the third month when Israel arrived on Sinai. And then we read Moses went up to the mountain and it, it actually was a shuttle diplomacy, you could say, between God and, with God and Moses where he talked with him on the mountain, sent him back, told them, tell the people they need to sanctify themselves for three days and the third day I will appear. He goes back up and goes back down. And then the rabbis, they, they say it was exactly on this 50th day after the, with the Omer counting, after Israel left Sinai, exactly on that day, the following took place. He says, and in the morning of the third days, that means after three days of sanctifying them before the Lord, this is verse 16 in Exodus chapter 19, in the morning of the third day, there were thunders, 
lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And uh, with this, I want to conclude. We can go on with a further uh, description. It says twice here, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. He came down on fire on Mount Sinai. And what we see is quite a dramatic uh, description of a, of a nation that is encountering their gods. And if there is a passage in the Bible, or I would say it's one of those passages, you know, where you put down your, you underline it and you say, if there would be a chance to be there with Israel, that's one of the moments where I would like to have been uh, in the in the story of Israel, because Israel had this incredible encounter with God coming down on the mountain in fire. The whole mountain was trembling. The camp was trembling. And then what happened afterwards, you can read in chapter 20, the, the people of Israel, that's at least how it is described here in Exodus chapter 20, they heard the audible voice of God. And this is un unbelievable. You know, they, they, as God is speaking to them, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, they sh thou shalt not murder, uh, you shall um, not uh, um, steal, you shall not bear false witnesses, etc. Those words in, in, a, in a real way were hammering down from heaven in, to such a degree that there was a, it was literally a shock and awe experience for Israel that the leaders of Israel run to Moses and says, tell God to start God to stop that because we cannot stand any longer to hear the voice of the Lord. You will be now our intermediary. You go up, you talk to the Lord, you come back, you tell us what you hear. And this is going to, this is what we should have it because we can't bear it to hear the very voice of the Lord. And I believe one of the reasons why this was that is in a way, as God was uh, uttering his commandments, which in a way is a representation of the very character of God, he was putting a mirror in front of every person. And I believe each one recognized, well, I'm actually not fitting this mirror. I'm not anymore the man in God's image. We can't stand this challenging voice anymore. Moses, you go down, you go up and you saw that out for us. And then we read in the following chapters how Moses continues to go up and he receives uh, from the Lord the Torah and the description of the, 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 the tabernacle in the desert. And uh, I want to suggest to you that this whole episode of Shavuot of Mount Sinai actually only came to a conclusion in a way 40 days after Moses finished the fast. And we read there in chapter 31, verse 18. And this in a way you can say is the final result of the very first Pentecost, the very first Shavuot on Mount Sinai. And he gave Moses, chapter 31, verse 18, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tape tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And this was the, the final story how God dealt with Israel or the, the final chapter in a way how God dealt with Israel, at least in that context on Mount Sinai, that 
the product that Moses brought back from this first Shavuot was two tablets of stones written with the finger of God. And again, you know, um, talking about trying to be there, um, this would be the archaeological artifact of all ages. You would have two stone tablets, not with a cuneiform uh, uh, writing of King Sanherib or this or that. You actually would see the handwriting of God on a piece of rock. And I can just tell you how much I would love to see that artifact. But unfortunately, the Torah story later on tells us that uh, Moses, uh, he just in, a, in an outrage, he crushed that tablet. He had to go back and he had to write them back up again himself. So we don't have, unfortunately, a chance to get the handwriting of the Lord. But this was the first Pentecost that Israel experienced, the Jewish people until today, when they celebrate Shavuot, they remember that Shavuot Pentecost is the day when Israel was receiving the Torah from the Lord, when God came down on, on fire, in fire on Mount Sinai and gave his commandments to the Torah to the Jewish people. And it, as we saw, it was two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, now I would like to leapfrog forwards, um, not 2000, but maybe 1500 years from that experience in, uh, on Mount Sinai in the desert. And let's go to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, we read about another Pentecost celebration. It's actually really one of the very few uh, occurrences where you really read something about Pentecost, maybe also in except the book of Ruth, and maybe Shmuel, you later on can supplement myself if there are other passages in the Tanakh that speak about Shavuot. But uh, in the book of Acts, in, the, in our Christian uh, scriptures, and in, in Acts chapter 2, you read the following account, and you probably have heard it many, many times. Acts chapter 2, it says, and when the day of Pentecost has fully arrived, and we could replace this also when the day of Shavuot has fully arrived. That means when they counted down the Omer, 50 days were fully being counted. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And later on you read that uh, this was again such an ecstatic uh, experience. It was in a way not comparable to the magnitude of what was taking place on Mount Sinai, but it was still a spectacular experience because as those disciples started to speak out in tongues, we read later on, there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, etc., etc., uh, Romans, Cretans, Arabs, they were there, and as they were listening to the disciple, they said, I can't believe what I hear here. They all praise God in my language. 
They all suddenly understood what those disciples were saying, praising God and praising the, the, the deeds of the Lord. And this caused such a commotion in Jerusalem that at least a crowd of some 3,000 people, it says later on, they gathered on that day and listened to the sermon of Peter. And the first point that I would like to make to this uh, on this passage is that uh, you probably, after you heard me reading the, the chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, you see that there were some parallels with what was taking place on Shavuot in uh, Mount Sinai and on the Shavuot celebration in the upper room here in Jerusalem. Number one, there was no shofar blow, we, we hear it, but there was a rumbling or the sound, the call, you would translate it in Hebrew, of a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house. And then secondly, the fire of God did not come down on the mountain, but tongues of fires, they settled on each one of the congregants, 120 we read in the preceding chapter, and each one of them received, you could say, his own private flame of fire upon them. The Bible says, well, they, uh, I, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they start talking in other tongues. Now, the first point that I would like to make in, with the other tongues, it's quite an interesting. I, I saw a Jewish commentary the other day, and that was very intriguing to me. They say, according to our tradition, when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, uh, each commandment was like a, the, the, the slashing of a hammer on an anvil. And as each time the, the, the hammer was hitting the, an, the anvil, tongues of fire were emanating from that anvil. And they said each time a commandment was given, 70 tongues of fire of, uh, emanated from the anvil, represented the languages of the 70 nations of the world. And I found this quite amazing. This is not in the Bible, but it's part of the Jewish tradition that you have a very similar phenomenon at the very first day of Pentecost that suddenly what God was doing was understood by many people speaking in many different tongues. For the Jewish people, they say this was because the Torah is a, a universal code that God gave to his people that is also true for other nations. And also, of course, for the church, it was the beginning where God made the point that this good news that we have, the good news of a Messiah, is a message that needs to be shared with every tongue and every nation, a theme that goes through the entire uh, New Testament books. The second point that I would like to make, <clears throat> and this is uh, something maybe a little bit more subtle, I would like to talk about the finger of God. You remember I, I read to you in Exodus chapter 31, the last verse, where it says, on that Pentecost day, Moses came down with two tablets of stone, and they were written by the finger of God. And, um, and, and again, you know, these were tablets that bear the handwriting of the Lord. You know, some people tell us, and, and, and I hear this many times, you know, that um, People don't really see that the connection to Mount Sinai, to Pentecost, 
because in the book of Exodus, there is not a single mentioning of the Holy Spirit, at least not in contact connection to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, there are two very interesting verses in the, in the Gospels that I would like to read to you. Uh, one of them is uh, the Gospel of Luke, and, um, and this is chapter uh, 11 in the Gospel of Luke, verse 20. And there we see that Jesus engages himself in an argument with the rabbis, the scribes of his time that didn't really believe that he was the Messiah. On the contrary, they thought this is a, a demon-possessed man that is just casting out demons with other demons. So they didn't really appreciate the ministry of him. And then Jesus replied to them, made a very interesting sentence. He says, but if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And here it is again, the finger of God. There's again not too much saying in the Bible about the finger of God. But Jesus said, he says, I am casting out demons by the finger of God. And if you see that happening, it's a sign that the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, you, we still don't know yet really what is the finger of God, but let us read exactly the same story in the book of Matthew. You read so the same context, the argument that Jesus had with the scribes of his times. And then Jesus says the same sentence in the following way. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then you know the kingdom of God has come to you. And I found this quite interesting that in the gospel, the finger of God in many ways is equalized or is equal with the spirit of God. That Jesus, we knew he was a man filled with the spirit and that uh, he was casting out in the power of the Holy Spirit people who were possessed by demon or demonized. And, uh, and he calls that he referred to that by doing it by the finger of God. In another version we read it, he was referring it to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Moses came down with two tablets of, God, of stone written with the finger of God. And I believe, and I'm just taking, I'm a, I have a mathematical education. You know, you just, if you have X equals Y, that means you can play, replace in many places uh, X with Y and vice versa. So in my opinion, you can replace it in, in the book of Exodus chapter 39. You could also say Moses returned from the mountain of God with two tablets of stone written by the Holy Spirit. That means this finger of God, the Holy Spirit, were very present in, on Mount Sinai when God came down in fire on this mountain as it was in the upper room. And what really was taking place on this day of Pentecost, and you know, I'm the son of a Pentecostal pastor, and uh, Shmuel, for you to ex explain it to you, what Pentecostals are, we believe in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the main teaching traits of our movement. And of course, you always associate Pentecost with the dynamis, the power of the Holy Spirit to heal people, to cast out demons, to have words of prophecy. And that's in a way a trademark of the Pentecostal movement. And let me suggest to you today, and this might shock some of our listeners today, 
that this is only a peripheral outworking of the Holy Spirit that is important that we need. And I wish we would see that more in our day by the true working of the Holy Spirit on that Shavuot day in Jerusalem was something far more deeper and far more important than just signs and wonders. I want to read you a passage that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And he says there the following to the church in Corinth. Now you yourselves, you are letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all men. As you show that you are a letter to, of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but the, by the Holy Spirit, the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And in a way, what Paul was telling the, the early church in Corinth, the main work of the Holy Spirit, of course, it is spectacular and it is amazing because you are dealing with a supernatural God. There will be always miraculous manifestation, but the true working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is very similar to Mount Sinai, that the Holy Spirit was there. The only difference to the new covenant is not that this is the only difference to the of between the old and new covenant you can say is only laying in the writing material on exodus he returned back with the finger of god writing on tablets of stone what paul is telling here what the holy spirit is doing today in our lives he wants to write his torah his commandment his word in our hearts and he wants to change our hearts through the holy spirit and i want to suggest to you as as still even pentecostal friends from around the world that this is the most important work of the holy spirit that he is able to change us recreate us in a way more in his image that we are becoming more like him reflecting the torah the commandments of the lord that people can read in our lives what it means to be a follower of the god of israel and that means also you know if you see in the beginning of the gospel of john he made this amazing statement which where he speaks about uh, the Messiah, he says, he was in the beginning, and the beginning was the world, and the world was with God. And, the, and, uh, and then it says later on in verse 14, he says, and the world became flesh and dwelt among us. And the way how I understand this is that those disciples of Jesus, they were educated in the Torah. They knew their Bible. They knew it probably better than many of us today. But when Jesus was walking around them, they felt that with Yeshua, the Torah, the commandments of the Lord, suddenly they took on the form of flesh. And I believe every day when they walked with him and they saw him talking to women, when he saw them talking to poor people and needy, how the way how he was eating, the way how he was relating to many different walks of society, they saw the character of God or the word of God manifested. And I believe almost on a daily basis, probably they said, oh, this is what it's meant in the Torah now I fully understand it. And in a way, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to work in us. He wants to come in our lives and he wants to write his commandments, his Torah in our lives. There's one last point that I would like to, to make. And this is going back to the book of Acts. Um, we read here, uh, the Apostle Peter now, on this day when the um, multitude came together, they heard those different voices. 
uh, he is standing up, and we read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, is that Peter stood up with the eleven, and he lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, uh, and then he started his uh, sermons. And he made, makes some important point, I didn't want to go time for time's sake through the entire sermon, but I want to highlight one point that is important for our Christian listeners around the world, because especially, let me say, in the charismatic Pentecostal area, but even I think in the wider evangelical community, in a, in a way we take ownership of the Holy Spirit, where we say, well, we in the church today, we are the people of the Holy Spirit, but the Jewish people, sadly, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they don't have this same type of experience. Now, the first thing that Peter did when he got up and he spoke, and we have to remember the audience at that time, they were Jewish people who came from the diaspora to celebrate it, the Chag in Jerusalem. There were no Gentiles there. And he was addressing them as Jewish people. And you know, many, many times I have to add that to it. You may, we Christian approach, approach that passage that the disciples went into the time of Shavuot, in a way, not to know what to expect. They had no idea what was coming, and they were surprised. Oh my gosh, wow, uh, the Holy Spirit is being poured out. What a surprise that is for us. But what Peter did, he knew immediately the very second it was, it was happening, he knew what it was. He got up and told the people, he says, you know, they thought they were drunk, they, it's nine o'clock and they speak in those crazy languages. Maybe they had a, a little bit too much booze in the morning and they're drunk too much wine. And Peter got up, he says, those people have not drunk a bit. They, they, they are not drunk with wine because it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But what you see here, he says, it was, was uttered through the prophet Joel, and he's quoting now the Old Testament prophet Joel, in the last day it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And in a way, Peter immediately understood this is something that is happening today. We have been waiting for so long to be fulfilled. And this, we have to understand that this concept of being filled with the new Holy, with the Holy Spirit is not a new covenant or a church invention or a invention of Paul, but this is a concept that is as old as the people of God exists. We read first from one of the patriarchs, Joseph, when he approaches Pharaoh at the, at the, at the, uh, and, and becomes the second hand of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh gives him a testimony. He says, well, I have never met a person who is in whom the spirit is so powerful manifest than you, Joseph. That means Joseph was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we read an interesting passage in the book of Numbers, well, Moses, in a way, seems to be tired and weary of his ministry, and God saw that, and he says, Moses, I'm going to help you. I will put 70 other uh, people that I'm going to fill with the same spirit that is upon you, and I will put it upon you. And then something funny was happening. Those 70 people came to this tabernacle, except of two who stood back in the tents, and then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon all those 70, including those two, and they started to prophesy back there in their tents. And Joshua saw it. 
And he says, run to Moses. He says, this is not appropriate. They are prophesying in their tents. This is something holy. They should do it only here in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. You need to tell them to stop that immediately. And then hear what Moses said to him. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Numbers eleven twenty nine. Would it be that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them? That means right in the very beginning, when Israel was still on Mount Sinai, there was this thirst and desire of Moses. I wish that my entire nation would be filled by the Holy Spirit. And this theme runs like a thread through the entire prophets. You have found hardly a prophet that doesn't prophesy. There will come a day when I'm going to pour out my spirit on my people. We just read this in, in, in Joel chapter 2. is the one of the passages. You read it in Isaiah multiple times where it says, I'm going to pour out water on a dry land. I will pour out my spirit on my people. You see Ezekiel writing, I'm saying, I'm pouring my spirit upon my people. I sprinkle clean waters upon them and I put my spirit upon them. Jeremiah put it a little bit different. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm writing my Torah on their, on their hearts. And in a way, it's a prophecy and expectation that is everywhere in the prophets. And Peter immediately understood what we are experiencing here is not a new Christian phenomenon, but this is something that for so many ages already was prophesied to us. And now it's happening before our eyes. And the people who experienced it were not the priests or the high religious class, but it was the individual people, like Joel said, slaves, free people, old, young, rich, poor, everybody had a, received a portion of that Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, Peter says something very important, and this is something which we as uh, believers also, as Christians, we need to remember that he got up to the crowd and he says, this promise is for you and your father, for, for your children. And then he says, Jesus, he pulled that out, having received the father uh, from the father, the spirit, uh, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I never realized that until recently that many times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the promised Holy Spirit or the spirit of promise. That means in the minds of those early Christians or believers who were all Jewish, this was something they knew it is promised long time ago for us. And you find this in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, and the following, where God says, the blessing of Abraham is to pour out the spirit of promise on the believers. He speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, we have been sealed by the spirit of promise. That means the Holy Spirit was not a new invention of the New Testament church, but it was rather the fulfillment of something that they were expecting for centuries. And with that in mind, I want to close just with one passage. And this is something, you know, which I can give you if, if we would have time, many passages of the of the prophets, but I just would like to use one that I was reading the other day. It's also to a group in Germany. He says, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant. This is Isaiah chapter 44. Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb. 
He will help you. Fear not of Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, who I have chosen, for I'm going to pour out water on a thirsty land and streams in a dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. And I believe that this is something, you know, if you, if you read the context of all those Holy Spirit passages in the prophets, they all are in the context, or the vast majority of them, they are in the context which speak about an end-time restoration of the Jewish people back to their land. Where God says, when I bring back my people back to the land of Israel, it will be also followed up by a move of the Holy Spirit upon, upon the people of Israel. And I believe as we are um, we will see this as we see the physical restoration of Israel unfolding before our eyes, even in the times of trouble. I believe this also will be fulfilled, not because I say it, but because God said it in so many times. And it will be something that, like, like the prophets say, it's, it will be uh, a change of heart. It will be something new where a spiritual revival will come over this nation. And I want to close with, you know, I had a discussion this week with one of my boys. And uh, he told me, says, Daddy, or he asked me, says, uh, Daddy, why did, uh, why was it finished? Why was God finished with the book of Revelation in writing with the Bible? And I told him, oh, this is a good question. Maybe it's because God just was finished with telling us what he needed to know. We didn't need anything extra. And I tried to find all kinds of explanations. And then he came up with something. And this really, uh, I got tears in my eyes when I heard this comment from him. He said, Daddy, maybe could it be that God didn't continue writing the Bible because the Jewish people didn't live in their land? And he says, can it be that God is going to do something with the Jewish people in the days in which we are living, where maybe God will continue writing his word with the people that returned back to this land? And I thought, you know, this is not something that the Bible said, but I just found this was an amazing concept which my son came up with. And you know, when we speak about this nation being a, a light to the nations, uh, he told me, he says, you know, um, if the Holy Spirit gets hold of a Jewish people, they have so much insight in the Bible that we Gentiles have. And I think this will release a dramatic blessing for the whole world, for us as Christians around the world. It will bring a whole new level of understanding to us. And it is something that is promised by the prophets. How it exactly will look like, I honestly don't know. I can't tell you. But it is something that is, uh, that is promised again and again in the Bible. And it is something that we need to pray for as much as we pray for Aliyah and other initiatives because it is, it is part of God's end-time prophetic purposes for the nation of Israel. And with this, I would like to, I hope I stimulated your thought a little bit in regard to um, uh, what Pentecost means and what is the connection to Mount Sinai. And uh, I didn't talk to Shmuel today what I'm going to speak about, so I'm not sure if he is wondering, oh my gosh, what is this guy uh, preaching here? But uh, I want to hand it over to you and to make your comments for, for good or worse. <laughs> Jürgen, Jürgen, we, we, we know each other a long time. There are no surprises. 
no surprises. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, Shavuot. Shavuot is uh, so many of the uh, comments that you made uh, resonates the fact that Shavuot really uh, is the if you if you if you put it this way is is really the last part of Pesach of Passover. And you're absolutely right because we we talk a lot about Passover, and of course, uh, you know, uh, Sukkot or Feast of Tabernacles, which in many respects, listen, Jews have been uh, uh, celebrating Sukkot uh, for uh, thousands of years, but I think it's really been the ICEJ that has turned uh, Sukkot uh, and has brought it to the awareness of the uh, of the of the, of the non-Jewish world that this is also a powerful and important uh, festival. And, uh, and, and today people take for granted, they talk about Feast of Tabernacles as if uh, it's been something that's been celebrated in the Christian world forever. And the fact is, is that's not the case. It's not the case. It's really been the pioneering efforts of the ICEJ that has really brought something that as Jews, we consider to be one of the three biggies and you've brought it to the forefront. So what are the three biggies? The three biggies are Passover. We all know Passover, Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot. And it's, uh, I think, one of the reasons why, uh, why Shavuot is lesser known is because it's, uh, it, it kind of lacks some of the trappings and, and, and physicality uh, that you get at Passover and Feast of Tabernacles. Passover, we all know, there's matzah. Right, we know the matzah, and we know that it's a whole to-do, it's a whole big deal, we've got to bake the matzah, and we've got to look for, uh, make sure that there's no leavening involved, and, and there's a lot going on. There's the Passover Seder, which I think uh, just about everybody who is uh, on this call right now uh, participates in some way or another in a Passover Seder. And so you know what the Passover is, it's, it's, the, it's the commandment of the telling of the story. So there's a lot of things that's, that's going on with Passover. With, uh, with, with, with Sukkot, Feast of, uh, Feast of uh, Tabernacles, you go out, you actually build a sukkah, you build this booth, right? For those of you who have been to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, you may have uh, noticed that uh, beautiful uh, structure outside, okay? Uh, if, you've been in, if you've been either in Israel or to uh, Jewish homes, you've seen what's going on with the building of a, of a, of a temporary dwelling we actually move out into that temporary dwelling. For those of you who've been to our home in Afrat, which we love to host as many people as possible, you'll know that we, we eat outside, sleep outside, everything is outside. But Shavuot, poor Shavuot, what's happening at Shavuot? Shavuot is, in, in many respects, is the Zman Matan Torateinu in Hebrew, the time of the receiving of the Torah. Lovely, that event took place, as you mentioned, and we read about in the book of Exodus. It happened then. What have we been doing since, right? Have we actually been back to Mount Sinai? We know that those, the Israelites who were at Mount Sinai uh, on that particular occasion, when the, when the Torah was given, actually received prophecy. What does that mean? They actually heard the word of God in that moment. And you're right, they heard the first two the two first commandments of the Big Ten, and afterwards they were like, "We have a midrash. We have a we have a a a, 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 um, a teaching that accompanies the Torah. It's called a midrash. 
that teaches us that everybody died. They actually died. They couldn't take it. Their bodies couldn't take it, and they were actually resurrected at that moment. Can you imagine? Everybody was actually resurrected at that moment, and they were like, we don't want to go through that again. Coming back to life is not as easy as it sounds. It's a big deal. Okay, it's a big, it's, it's, it, it, it's very scary. It's very frightening. You don't want to risk that too many times. So they said, Moses, you go, Moshe, you go and do it on your own. And so there is that. But what have we been doing since? Well, for one thing, we actually observe the, the anniversary of Matan Torah. And as a result, Shavuot has a few names. And one of the names for Shavuot is, besides Shavuot, which is Feast of Weeks, which I'll talk about in a second, is Chag. Matan Torah, the festival of the receiving of the Torah. But it's also called a few other names. It's called Chag HaBikurim, which is the festival of the harvest. And, excuse me, Chag HaKatsir, pardon me, which is the festival of the harvest. And Chag HaBikurim. What's Bikurim? Bikurim is first fruits. This is the festival of the first fruits. And it's a big deal. So as a result, the festival of Shavuot is not only about the uh, revelation at Mount Sinai, which is the end part of Exodus, but has something to do with an agricultural festival. Can we draw and can we pull the connections together? I think we can. Shavuot means weeks, and as you pointed out quite correctly, it is the counting of seven weeks. Seven times seven equals 49. I get that part, but then, we actually celebrate Shavuot on the 50th day. What does that mean? Well, if you think about it, seven is a number that represents the natural world. Uh, And there's no question that uh, God is responsible for the natural world. But we kind of move in the natural world as if it's no big deal. How many, of, how many of you, I don't know, if, you know, stopped and realized what it's, what it's like to actually wake up in the morning and see the sunrise? Or really what's happening is the earth rotating on its axis, on its axis, and as a result, coming around to witnessing the sun. How many of us really understand that that's an incredible, incredible miracle? I'm told by, uh, by physicists and geologists that if the, if the earth were off on its axis, by even the most minuscule amount. If it were hit, God forbid, by an asteroid or something like this and knocked off kilter, everything would change. The weather would change. We could, it could be a disaster. And so everything is done in absolute perfect, perfect, um, uh, uh, perfect measure. So that's seven, right? Seven days of creation, right? Six days actually, and the seventh day being a day of rest. Therefore, one above seven, one above seven plus something, seven plus one, is above nature, or the word is actually supernature or supernatural. And that's exactly what Shavuot is. Shavuot is, oh, I understand how seven works. I get this, I get the seven-day cycle. I get how nature works. Ah, God comes along and says, but that's not the day that I'm revealing the Torah. Because the Torah is Nature plus one. It's above nature. It's a supernatural experience. It is, in fact, as you pointed out, a spiritual experience. It's a spiritual experience. And so that's... Can, can, can I interrupt you? Does this also come together? You know, when you, this was very interesting with the 50 
uh, does this also refer to the Jubilee where you have those 50 years, uh, which uh, does, is there a connection to that also? Exactly. So the Jubilee, so we have a couple of things. We have, there's a lot of things happening that are happening in that, in that uh, 50th. So the 50th talks about the Jubilee. The Jubilee is, is a concept that after, um, after not weeks, but years, seven times seven years, okay, you get to the, what's called the Yovel. And the Yovel is translated as the Jubilee meaning that all land ownership goes back to its original original owners. The all land goes back to its original owners. It's a very powerful idea because the rabbis teach us that what that means is, is that if, you're the, if you own that land and it now comes back to you, that you can now build a house on it, right? You couldn't do that when it was in somebody else's care. You couldn't do that when somebody else had title to it. You can't go ahead and build your house on when somebody else is, is there. If you, you can you can build your animal pen, you can do all sorts of things which in a sense reminds everybody this land is mine. This belongs to me. It's a very, very powerful idea. It's a very important idea. And it, it, it teaches us in many respects that, oh, you think that just because you have a deed to this land that it's yours? Wrong. God understands that this land has a very spiritual element as well, and that and that that spiritual element is tied to the to the people who own it. So so there is this idea throughout the Torah that the physical and the spiritual go hand in hand; they're not separated; they go hand in hand. And I think what happens in the Torah is that there's a physical uh, physical manifestation of of what God's will is. Everything that we do, every mitzvah that we do, every commandment that we do has a physical aspect to it. It's very, very important. And I think that this is one of the big, uh, the biggies that people notice when they look at Judaism. And in fact, the biblical roots, the Hebrew roots of Christianity, they say, oh, look at that. There's actually a tangible thing that I can connect to the spiritual idea. So I think it's very, very powerful. So... Uh, so we have the idea of Shavuot, we have the idea of it being the 50th day, but as I mentioned, we also have this idea of, of, of the Chag HaKatsir, the harvest. What's going on? In the land of Israel, and I don't know what the, what's going on, where are we? We're in the 20th of May right now, so I'm from Canada originally, and it is not the time to harvest wheat in Canada on the 20th of May. It definitely is not that time whatsoever. I don't know what the wheat fields look like in Canada or in, or in northern Germany or wherever else. But here in the land of Israel, it's time to start harvesting, harvesting wheat. And that's very, very important. And as a result, the, the Torah is, is coming along. And we can see this in the book of Numbers, chapter 28. Book of Numbers, chapter 28, verse 26. And it says very clearly, we mentioned the word on the day of the first fruits when you offer a new flower offering to God on your when on your festival of weeks again it should be a holy convocation to you and you shall do no laborious work and it's very very important to understand that the moment we talk about the idea of not doing laborious work, we connect the festival to a Shabbat-like experience. And 
we, we know that the festival of Passover, the festival of Shavuot, and the festival of Sukkot have a Shabbatness to it. It's very interesting because a lot of people argue on this fact. They say, oh, 50 days counting from the first Shabbat after, of, of, after Passover will be Shavuot. And so people go, well, it must be the first Sabbath after Passover. No, Passover has a Shabbatness to it. You can't do any work, right? You can't do, do any work, uh, labor work, as it says here in the Book of Numbers, on any of the festivals. It has a, it has a, it has a Shabbatness to it. So, um, so that's very important. And as a result, our rabbis teach us in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is very, very interesting. And there is no doubt in my mind that when we were talking before about the, uh, the, the disciples in that time period, this is when the Mishnah is being written. This is, this is the, this is the uh, rabbinic laws, the rabbinic teachings that everybody knew about. This wasn't something that somebody would be like, oh, what's that? And what the Mishnah is the writings of the oral law that understand how you live practically. And what's the Mishnah talking about at this time of, at this time of the year? Bikurim, how do you actually harvest them? How do you actually go from harvesting the barley to transitioning to harvesting the wheat? So interesting. And smack in the middle of all of this, we meet, we meet Ruth. We meet the book of Ruth, and it's no accident that the book of Ruth is written at this, at this specific time. It's very, very interesting that when you look at the book of Ruth, and specifically at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 22, and it talks about Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite, and they returned from the fields of Moab, and what does it say? They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. At the barley harvest. What's going on? What do you mean the barley harvest? I thought this is the harvest of the wheat. That's right. They came at the barley harvest, which is back just before Passover. And their entire story that takes place between Ruth and Boaz and the whole deal, it didn't happen in a snap. It didn't do that. It happened over the period between uh, pa Passover and ultimately what will be Shavuot. And look how the book of Ruth ends. The book of Ruth ends in a sense with the, um, with the establishment of what will be the kingdom of the house of David. Isn't that amazing? In a sense, Ruth is the, is, we say in Yiddish, the Babi. She's the Babi. She's the, she's the, she's the Alta Mama. Right, she's the great, great, she's the great, great grandmother of King David, and it actually goes through. Check it out for yourself if you haven't seen it for yourself. Look at the book of Ruth, it actually ends with the lineage of Ruth going into King David, and that's very, very important. And we understand, therefore, that Shavuot, therefore, uh, is this transition where we go from barley to wheat, and you can talk about, that's for another occasion, we can talk all about what the meaning of wheat is all about, but clearly wheat is, is a higher, in a sense, is a, is a, we're moving up, we're moving up the, the food chain ladder, wheat is a higher level, right? I like barley, I like barley, because I like beer, so I like barley, there's no question about that, and there's some good barley you products. Should, you should try the German wheat beer. Oh, I have, oh yes, well, okay, <laughs> and, and right, that's another, that's another level. We've, we've hopped another level. Hopped, hopped, you get it? We've hopped another level. So, 
So, so, so it's very, very important to understand what's going on with, with the, in a sense, the, uh, the, the marriage between Chagmatan Torah, the festival of the receiving of the Torah, and the harvest. Because this harvest is coming together to show us that there is, in fact, a, a season of holiness that we can see in the field itself. The rabbis are teaching uh, all about how to do, actually how to physically do the Bikurim. What does it mean to bring first fruits to the temple, for example? That's a very big deal. We're not going to go into the details of that, but to know that it goes hand in hand. What is, how, is, how is Shavuot celebrated in Israel today? as it has been for generations, two different ways. We celebrate the anniversary of Matan Torah through something called Tikkun Leil Shavuot. Tikkun means a fixing, a repairing of what happened at Mount Sinai. In other words, we want to get it right. We want to get it absolutely right. As you mentioned, unfortunately, things did not go so well immediately after the first set of the Ten Commandments, okay? We don't dwell on that, we learn from it. As a result, we stay up all night learning the Word of God. It's called Tikkun Lel Shavuot, we study the Word of God. It's an amazing experience. What's also happening in the farm fields? Well, you know, we have a very good friend, a mutual good friend, his name is, his name is Shai Chermesh. The word Chermesh, his last name Chermesh, means the, the wheat cutter. That's the actual knife the blade that actually cuts the wheat in Hebrew is the word chermesh. And there's a wonderful festival that actually begins at Shavuot time, where if you go into the fields of Israel and you actually start cutting the wheat, you start harvesting the wheat. There is a deep connection to the land of Israel that takes place. And so both things are happening uh, really uh, at, the, at the same time. I just want to touch on one last point. And that has to do with the finger of God. It's a powerful idea. But under no circumstances do we believe for a second that God has a finger. Not in a physical form. The concept that God is, is, a, is a physical entity with a, with a hand and a finger and God is up there kind of like, you know. No. The concept of a finger in Hebrew it's called etzba. And therefore the finger of God is called etzba Elohim. The finger of God. What do we do when we point a finger? We are pointing to something we all want to focus on. Okay? We point with our finger when we say, I want to focus on this, or I want to focus on that. That's what it means to, to, to point with a finger. Etzba Elohim means that God is literally saying, right now, the only thing in the entire world that matters is this, the writing of the Torah. That's where everyone should be looking right now. As a result, if you go to a synagogue and see when they bring out the Torah, and especially you see this in a Sephardic synagogue, which are the Jews from uh, Spain, parts of uh, Holland and North Africa, and in the Arab world, okay, it's, they, they, have, they have maintained this tradition. When the Torah comes out, and I invite anybody to come and see this and go to your local, especially Sephardic synagogue, they open up the Torah, and what does every single person in the synagogue do? Points. And they point. And all eyes are on the Torah. 
because that is the most important thing for us to be looking at right now. That's what it is. And when God writes the Torah, God is writing and saying, this is the emphasis. It's very interesting that our tradition is, is that God wrote the Torah scroll, and excuse me, wrote the Torah scroll, but also wrote the Ten Commandments, and a miracle took place that God engraved it. Our rabbis teach from one end into the other. And actually, not only was it engraved, but it was engraved all the way through. So I just wanted to kind of make that point uh, rather clear that it's 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 a spiritual pointing with a spiritual finger that says all eyes on this. This is what's important right now. Amen, Shmuel. Thank you for that, Jorgen. Uh, thank you for a wonderful overview from Pentecost through the experiences of the uh, disciples and uh, just kind of my own application here as, as Shmuel is talking about the finger of God is God calling attention to that thing um, in the, the charismatic and the Pentecostal experience, the spirit of God is calling us back to the father. It's calling our attention back to his, his sovereignty, his, he is everything. Um, and uh, we, we had a question in the chat about, uh, did Matthew refer to the finger of God? And I tried to clarify that was the words of Jesus there saying he cast out the demons by the spirit of God. Whereas in Luke, he said he cast out the demons by the finger of God, drawing that comparison of use of the, the different verbiage to describe the same thing. In God's presence, he's calling his attention of those around him to what he's doing to his purposes. Um, well, I've got a lot to think on. I've been busy taking notes. I'm going to go back and review the scriptures. I'm sure our guest will have as well. Um, Jürgen, would you have some closing comments? No, I enjoyed listening to you, Shmuel. This was, uh, as always, very interesting, and it's, uh, and I think you know, even the the very fact of you know, no matter what we even talked about, that we are sitting together and in peaceful way, uh, highlight the Torah and the Bible and the Word of God from different points of view, and we can do so in unity. I think that's a a blessing in itself, and I hope and I pray we have more times like that, and. I think it's uh, especially for us Christians, it helps us to reconnect uh, to the very roots of our faith. And, uh, and this is one of the blessings that I have living here in the land to so many times I say, okay, now I understand what actually the disciples meant because they were Jews and uh, Israelis like uh, we are living in this culture here today. So I hope this was a blessing. Maybe I will pray for all of us in closing and Father, I do ask you for this days of Pentecost, we do ask you for a fresh importation of the, your Holy Spirit. We want to invite you that your finger will point us to the things, your Holy Spirit will point us to the things that are important, that we uh, uh, take aside the less important issues, but that we focus on you, what you want us to do today. And again, we want to pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, in particular for the southern areas of Israel, the people around Gaza, Ashtod, Ashkelon, 
wherever there is an, a, an attack going on today. We ask you for your supernatural protection. We also want to bless the IDF, that you give them wisdom and insight to do their work that they need to do, and also the government of Israel. In the name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, before we have a closing promo, just to uh, let you know that this Sunday, there will be a special Pentecost production that ICEJ will be launching. Um, you can look for it on our website, and uh, it will be a continuation of this theme that we've been talking to. So thank you. We hope to see you all next week. And yes, Calera, if we can close with the promo video. I want to personally invite you for a very special program brought to you by the International Christian Embassy on the celebration of Shavuot. We are here right now at the place where 2,000 years ago the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early believers and we will come to you right from that place. Don't miss this series, it will be a blessing to your heart. Amen. May everyone have a blessed week. Thanks, Shmuel.